So this week, we are finishing up our little mini-series called I Am With You Always. Jesus gives us when he's with us. Um, so the first, we talked about the forgiveness we received in Christ. Last week, we talked about um, the freedom that we receive through that forgiveness. And today, we're going to be looking at what it means to bear fruit and the fruit that Jesus gives us when he is with us. But before we do that, I'd love if you to go to God in prayer with me. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this chance that we gather together to praise you, to worship you, to have a meal in your name, Lord. We just ask that you would be with us today as we dive into your word, as we dive into your scriptures. We ask that you would help to have the discernment that we need to understand your will for us, Lord. We pray that you would be with all of those who are hearing the gospel. We pray that you would be with the kiddos downstairs who are hearing the gospel in their language. Lord, we just ask that you would soften our hearts, that you open our ears, that you would allow us to hear your word, to hear your message. We would ask that you would just allow us to apply it to our lives, to go out these doors and live out Jesus in the community, not just here in the building, but all day, every day, constantly bearing fruit in season and out of season. We ask, I ask that you would be with me, that you would make my words clear and concise to those who would hear it. And I thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice he gave us. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen. Has anybody ever heard, it's an old Buck Owens song called Act Naturally. I think the Beatles did a copy of it, too. Anybody ever heard that one? They're going to put me in the movies. Right? Is it ringing a bell? And, okay. The reason I bring that up, not out of randomly, out of the blue, but as I was reading the scriptures and as I was preparing for this message and taking my notes and whatnot, I usually like to have music on in the background when I'm writing, and, and that song came on my playlist. If that gives you any idea of the kind of music I listen to when I'm writing my sermons, that may be. But it got me to thinking about how we think about things that are natural, right? Because the song is, all I've got to do is act naturally. And it got me thinking about the way we react and the way we act with natural things. Because I live over in Gehring, and... On the road from my apartment, when I go to the grocery store, when I turn the corner, I go down the street there, uh, I get a perfect view of Scotts Bluff National Monument. And what's really cool is, uh, y'all know Gehring Central Church of Christ there, right? When I come up, there's a perfect view of, of Gehring Central Church of Christ right here, and then the monument just backdrops. And that church is a beautiful building when you think about it. Aesthetically, it's got a high arch and the steeple and the cross on the front and everything. It's a beautiful building, but it pales in comparison to God's natural beauty that just dwarfs it right behind the building. We cannot create a statue or a building or anything good enough to match God's natural beauty that he gives us in the world. And what we find time and time and time again is that Things that are natural in the world are generally better than things that are not. Right? Think about fresh 
fruits and vegetables and compare that to cheese puffs? Which one of those is better for you to eat? Um, hey, who said cheese puffs? I heard that. <laughs> it might taste better, but it's not better for you. If you ate cheese puffs all day, you would not be in good shape. <laughs> um, just like, uh, has anybody ever tried to take a picture of a sunset or, or a full moon? And then you get your phone or your camera and you look at that and it looks awful, doesn't it? Compared to the real thing, because the real thing, the natural beauty is always going to be better than the copy of that natural thing. And so we, we start to understand that generally, I think maybe 90% of the time, things that are natural are good. And I said generally. Suppose we wanted to call this a rule. We could call it the natural equals good rule. Well, any rule has exceptions. Because I can list off a whole host of things that are natural that are definitely not good, at least not good for us. You think about uh, the tornado that comes through town. Think about rattlesnake venom and wildfires. These things might be good for you know the environment and the ecosystem and whatnot, but we can all agree at least that there are plenty of natural things that are not good for us. And what you find is what, when there's an exception to the natural equals good rule, the results are almost always catastrophic in nature. And so what I want to talk to you all about today is one very glaring exception to the natural equals good rule, and that is mankind's natural tendency toward sin. See, because of the fall of man, because of the broken world in which we live in, each one of us has a desire within us to sin. We have a broken heart. We're constantly prone to fall short of the glory of God, and we are naturally prone to evil. Left to our own devices, history has shown that human beings we will make the wrong choice 100% of the time left to our own devices. The book of Judges is a perfect example of that. What's the phrase we hear in the book of Judges over and over again? In those days, no king and did what was right in his own eyes. And in fact, the entire Old Testament is a tragic story of the fall of creation and then human beings constantly trying to reach the righteousness needed by God and failing again and again and again. Right? Think about, think about the best people in the Old Testament. The people in the Old Testament who are held up as the best version of humanity that mankind has to offer. I think about Moses and I think about King David are the two people that the Bible holds up in the Old Testament as the best version of humanity. And guess what? They were both murderers. We forget that. Moses killed a guy in Egypt. David sent Uriah into battle so that he could covet and he could have Uriah's wife. And he was the best version of humanity? He was the best thing that we have to offer? Offer? And look, they had a strong faith. Faith. 
But it really doesn't paint a very good picture when we think about the best version of humanity and they're both murderers, right? So last week we talked about the freedom we receive in Christ. And one of the big freedoms that we receive is that freedom from that sinful nature, that freedom from the flesh. Held captive to our sins. We were slaves, and Christ gives us freedom in order that we may live a new life in Him. But we're constantly in this tension, right? We're constantly in this tension between wanting what our natural heart desires and wanting what the Spirit gives us. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love if you would open up to Galatians chapter 5. And in fact, if you have one of those little ribbons in your Bible, I encourage you to take your little ribbon or your... and stick it in John 15... Save that spot and then open your Bible up to read Galatians chapter 5. That'll save you a little bit of time. See, Paul is talking about our freedom in Christ and how it stands in tension with our natural desires to indulge in sin. So I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Can I see what he's getting at there? He's getting at this idea that we are constantly in conflict within our nature because our desire to sin is hardwired into the code, so to speak. And when our natural desire to sin is an exception to that natural equals good rule, we almost always find that the consequences are catastrophic. Verse 19 the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. <sighs> Gotta take a breath, it's a long list. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envies, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now take a minute. I want to back up to the beginning of verse 9 and see what he says there. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. The word there in the Greek literally means plainly revealed, on display for everyone to see. It's something that's not a secret. 
One of my one of my kids' favorite things to do when we're at home is to play hide and seek. And they especially love to be the one who's hiding. And so a few weeks ago, we were we were at our apartment, we were at the little park there, and, and my daughter says, Daddy, play hide and seek. You count, I hide. And so I, I closed my eyes and I counted to ten and I could hear her kind of running off and well, she's not very good at hiding, at least not yet. She's only three. And, and so I opened my eyes to, to find where she is. Well, you know what? Let me just show you. Let me just show you the picture. I don't know if you can see. It's, it's, it's really difficult to tell in this picture where she's at because she's kind of camouflaged. So I want to enhance that just a little bit uh, and show you. See if you can. Okay, now if that helps. But isn't that how we treat our sins sometimes? We get this idea in our head that we can just hide our sin, that we can just cover it up, and then maybe people will look at us and think we're really good people. And a lot of times, we don't realize this, but as Christians, this is something that we're good at. I'm going to put scare quotes around it. We're really good at hiding our sin, and we're kind of guilty of this. See, a lot of times non-Christians will come into church and they'll be intimidated because they will look around at all of these, putting quotes around it, perfect people, and nice clothes and the well-behaved kids and the perfect relationships. And non-Christians walk into the building and they're like, I don't want to be a part of that. These people all have their lives together and I'm a mess. I don't want to be in a group of people that are like that. I don't deserve to be here. And what they don't realize is that we're nowhere close to perfect people. We don't have it all figured out. When you see that mother with the kids who walks into the church building and she's got her makeup just flawless and all of her kids are in their Sunday best and they just waltz on down like that. Well, you didn't see the last three hours of them trying to get into the minivan to get to the building. When you see that couple who sits next to each other and they hold hands and they're always so loving and so sweet and it seems like they've never had an argument, you don't see the conversations and the arguments that they have behind closed doors after everyone else has went to sleep. You see, we hide our sin really well, but who do we think that we're hiding our sin from? Who do we think that we're fooling when we hide our sin from other people? Are they the ones responsible for judging our sin? Deep down, a lot of us, on some level, feel like we're hiding our sins from God. We know on the surface of it, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think deep down, we feel like if we cover it up, we're actually hiding it from God. And maybe... If I put on a face enough, God won't see my sin. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3 for me really quick. I'm going to be starting in verse 7. In Genesis 3, this is right after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit in the garden right after they had realized that they had disobeyed God. In 7, they moved it in this Bible here. Oh, there it is. 
Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord of the garden. But the Lord... I'm sorry. Is it okay to say that I laugh every time I read this verse? Is that okay to say? But the Lord, the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? As if he didn't already know. Adam and Eve were walking with the Lord. Remember the supreme divine creator of all of creation who spoke the universe into existence with his words? <laughs> and then they, they get this idea that they can hide from him behind some bushes. He's God. And I laugh every time because it reminds me of when I play hide and seek with my daughter. And she's hiding behind the post. And I do the thing that dads do, right? I go, where is she? Is she under here? No. And God, I love it because he plays along a little bit. Where are you? This is the perfect example of how we try to cover up our sin. We try to hide it. We think that we can maybe cover up our sins a little bit, but God knows. God sees us. The acts of the flesh are obvious, plainly revealed. So don't think we can cover our sins up. I'm going to go back to Galatians again. I'm going to read that list one more time. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envies, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the natural state of mankind, left to our own devices. That list. And you might disagree with me on that. You might look around at your neighbors and say, well, I know nobody's perfect, but I haven't seen a like actual idolatry and witchcraft lately. Or you might think, like, I don't know when the last time I saw my neighbors engaging in orgies and drunkenness. That truly, you might be thinking, that can't be the natural state of man. you got to understand that for the past 2,000 years, Christianity in the West has been woven into the fabric of our culture to the point where, by and large, we have been a Christian culture for a long, long time. And the morality that comes from the Word of God, even for those who aren't practicing the faith, is woven into the culture so much that people are naturally adapting to the Christian way of life, at least for the past 2,000 years. I'll give you an example. This really this is actually really fun. If you ever go to a really busy hotel somewhere with an elevator that's always busy, and you walk into that elevator, and you face the opposite direction, and you ride that elevator up and down, if it's busy enough, 
If you ride that elevator long enough, eventually people will turn around. Because that social pressure is there. And you can ride that elevator. And what's really fun is if, if the elevator is busy enough, you can turn around backwards in that elevator until you get all of the other people to turn around. And then you can leave and they'll ride backwards in that elevator all day long. That's kind of the way the church has been for the past couple thousand years, that even people who aren't Christians kind of mirror what Christians do and what Christians act. So that's why you don't see people engaging in, you know, massive amounts of orgies and public drunkenness and witchcraft and idolatry and all the like. But what's the problem? If you leave that elevator and you come back the next day, if your presence is gone for long enough, people will turn back around the correct way and they'll face the right way in the elevator. So right now we are up at a point in our culture in which Christianity is dipping to the point where we are no longer in the elevator with the world. The amount of people who claim to be Christians, the amount of people who live a Christian life is going down to the point where we're not in that elevator anymore. So yes, I do truly believe that that list that Paul gives is the natural state of mankind and that those things are obvious and left to our own devices. These are the things that we would choose. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, what if I don't want to do what's natural? What if I want to do what's right? What did we say last week? Freedom is the right to do what God created you to do and to be who God created you to be. And if you remember anything from this sermon series, I want you to remember this. God's forgiveness gives us freedom from the flesh, all of those things we listed, and enables us to produce fruit. Paul says, in verse 22, this is right after he lists all of those things. Verse 22, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I want you to notice something about those two different lists. The first one, those are all actions. Those are things you do. But that second list, those are all identities. Those are things you become. You don't do joy, you are joyful. You don't do peace, you are peaceful. Because the flesh is all about the material, the here and now, the things you want, the things you desire, the things you do, but the spirit is about who you are. The fruit of the Spirit is not something you do, it's something that is produced in you. And the way you have that fruit produced in you is not by anything you do. It is produced in you because you belong to Christ. Not by your own merit. It's not anything you offer. Let me put it this way. The fruit of the Spirit, excuse me, 
is not something you bring to the table in your relationship between you and God. That's something he brings to the table. By belonging to Christ, by putting your old sinful nature to death, God produces fruit in you. In verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The only way that we can rid ourselves of our natural desire to sin, our natural tendency is to take our sinful nature, our flesh, all of that stuff that is natural and tends towards sin, and to nail it on that cross. All of our brokenness, all of our fear, all of our anxiety, all of our sin, we nail it on the cross. That's our confession. That's our repentance. That's what we are doing when we put our faith in Christ. We are nailing our old self to the cross. But Jesus wasn't done when he was hanging on the cross, was he? He was taken down and he went down into the grave and rose again three days later. That is our baptism. We put our sinful selves to death and then we die through the waters and we raise again to new life. And we continue to live not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. If you're producing bad fruit in your life, Here's the thing. The only way you can produce good fruit is to cut that tree down and plant a new one. And here's the thing about fruit. You ever think about this? You cannot produce fruit without a tree. Like, you cannot make an apple in a laboratory. You can make apple flavorings, and it kind of sort of maybe resembles the real thing, but you cannot produce fruit unless you are connected to the tree. In our spiritual lives, you cannot produce fruit if you are not connected to the tree. Turn over to John 15 with me for a second. We're going to talk about what it exactly it is that we are connected to. Verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. No, no branch can produce fruit unless it's connected to Jesus. You must remain in him. Because what happens to a branch that's not connected to the tree? What happens to a fruit that falls from the tree? It instantly begins to decay. 15.5 says, I am the vine. He says it again, in case we didn't the first time. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When a branch or a fruit is severed from the tree, it instantly begins the process of death and decay. Instantly. See, everything that that fruit needs comes from the tree. The fruit does not provide anything to the tree. All of its water, all of its nutrients, everything that it needs, it gets from the tree. It's like life support. Jesus is our life support. We have to stay connected to him through prayer, through the scriptures. We need that connection to him to be our life support. Let me put it one more way. The fruit is not something that we produce in order to make God happy. It's exactly the opposite. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are God's contributions to us if we stay rooted in Him. He supplies us with that replenishment, that spiritual nourishment that we need. Verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so also I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So one of the themes that I've been trying to really hit on in this little series is this idea that we receive benefit from Jesus right here and right now, not just in the eternal sense, but today. We receive the love of Jesus that sustains us. We receive the fruit of his Holy Spirit. Not just fleeting joy, not just fleeting love. Jesus says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The word there literally means filled up. You are full to the brim, overflowing with joy because you have the love of Christ. But notice what he says there. In verse 10 he says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. What commands could we possibly keep perfectly enough in order to remain in the love of Jesus. Because our natural tendency is not to keep God's commands. We kind of already discussed this. But listen to verse 12. My command is this, 
Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Here's the beautiful part of the whole thing. Jesus says, keep my commands and you will remain in me. He says, the two greatest commands you can keep are to love God and to love your neighbor. He says, you receive from me the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. God gives us everything we need. We bring nothing to the table. He gives us what we need in order to remain righteous in His sight. He knows we can't do it on our own. That's why He gives us the tools. Our forgiveness sets us free from the flesh, and the Spirit of God gives us the freedom to produce fruit. I've got one more point I want to make on this series, on this topic of fruit. What is the purpose of a fruit on a tree? Like an actual fruit, like an actual apple. What is the purpose of it? To feed. To feed? Spread. To spread seeds, right? What does it do for the tree? It spreads the seeds. That's the only reason uh, an apple exists on a tree. For the tree's benefit, the only reason it is is to spread seeds and plant more trees. The entire reason God gives us fruit in our lives is so that we can spread seeds in the lives of others. So that we can show the love and the joy of Christ in the lives of others and allow God to breathe life into them. In this passage, in the book of John, in the greater scope of things, Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, right before he gets arrested and goes to the cross. And he discusses a, a lot of other things here, but I want to leave you with the prayer, or at least part of the prayer, that he finishes up with. And honestly, I, I read through this prayer, I read through this passage of Scripture and tried to think of some some good preacher things to say and some good explanations, but I think Jesus kind of just sums it up good enough that I just want to read it to you. Makes my job easy. In verse 17, uh, excuse me, chapter 17, verse 20, this is what Jesus prays. This is the last half of his prayer. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, and they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bear fruit in our lives. We know that we can't do it on our own. We know that our hearts are sinful. We know that left to our own devices, we will make the wrong choice every single time. So Father, we ask that you would bear fruit in our lives, that you would guide our steps, that you would guide our paths. Father, some of us may be struggling. Some of us may be wavering. Some of us may have doubts and fears. We just ask that you would to put all of that at the foot of the cross, Lord, that you would guide our steps, you would guide our direction. We ask that you would take the driver's seat in our hearts and just help us to do what we need to do, Lord. We ask that that fruit that you produce in us would grow in abundance, that we, the world would see it, that it would spread seeds. Most importantly, Father, we ask that you would produce this fruit in us so that the world would see that you sent Jesus, that you love us, that you died for us. We ask that the world would see that. We pray that you would be with us throughout the week. We pray that you would be with us on our travels, that you would help us to bear fruit in the lives of other people, to plant seeds. We pray that you would soften the hearts of those who receive those seeds so that their heart would be like good soil, Lord. We ask that your kingdom would grow in alliance, in the panhandle of Nebraska, in the whole state of Nebraska, throughout this country, throughout this world. We pray that your kingdom will grow, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, yeah. Amen. So at this time, we like to sing a song of invitation. This is an opportunity for those who have not put their faith in Christ to come to know the Lord.